We are in week eight of this series through 2 Thessalonians as we've been in this verse-by-verse study uh, together of this fledgling church that the Apostle Paul himself had established. Now, if you happen to be traveling through Evansville, Indiana, and if you are into World War II history, I would encourage you to head downtown to the river park there on the Ohio River. Because there at the river park, you can find the only remaining seaworthy LST that was actually used in the D-Day invasion, that invasion which, of course, turned World War II there with the Normandy invasion. Now, you may say, what is an LST? LST stands for Landing Ship Tank. Records show that when LST-325 crossed the English Channel on that day and landed in Normandy Beach, it was carrying 59 vehicles, 30 officers, and 396 enlisted men. Over the next nine months, this ship would make over 40 trips across the English Channel and deliver thousands of pieces of equipment and personnel for the liberation of Europe from Nazi aggression. Well, 15 years after the war was over, the ship was decommissioned from the United States Navy and was actually gifted to the country of Greece. And Greece utilized it in the Greece Navy until 1999 when it was decommissioned for good. And at that, it looked like this ancient old ship was headed for the scrap metal yard. That was until some of her original crew members heard of her potential fate back in the United States. And so what they did was they launched a plan to save the old vessel and bring her back across the Atlantic Ocean to the shores of the United States for the first time in 60 years. These elderly sailors would oversee the restoration of the ship to make it as seaworthy as possible, and they would, in fact, serve as her crew one last time. Here's how Newsweek magazine described it in an article dated January 22, 2001. Their hair is gray, their shoulders are slumped, and they walk with the shuffle of the aged. Their ship, a rusty antique, wallowed through the Atlantic, battered by a winter storm. For the elderly crew of LST-325, it was the last chance to recapture their youth and to preserve their exploits for future generations. Ironically, the United States Coast Guard deemed the voyage from Greece to Mobile, Alabama, unsafe. The same daring that led these men to ignore deadly enemy fire led them to ignore the Coast Guard warnings. The ship is now safe at harbor and serves as a memorial to the heroism of the amphibious land craft crews. I love that phrase, the ship is now safe at harbor. A ship that survived not only the threat of German U-boats, but survived this precarious journey across the Atlantic, survived the scrap metal heap of history, is now safe at harbor. Well, the title of my message this morning is this, Safe and Secure. Over the last three weeks in our verse-by-verse expositional study through 2 Thessalonians, we have zeroed in on Paul's specific instruction that is introduced in verse 1 of this chapter concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. The church in Thessalonica had become shaken, 
They had become alarmed and they were fearful because they had heard a false report that the day of the Lord had actually already occurred and they missed it. And so the Apostle Paul identified for them two unmistakable signs that guarantee the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. These signs must happen, he says, before the day of the Lord. What were they? Number one, the rise of Antichrist. And number two, this great rebellion or apostasy. Now, on one hand, it surely was comforting for them to know, okay, that was a false report. We had not missed the day of the Lord. Christ has not yet returned because these two signs have not yet been fulfilled. However, those future realities that Paul described there would bring a little bit of fear in and of themselves. Why? Well, there's coming a great uh, antichrist, this great lawless one who will elevate himself above rule and authority and worship in this world. And there's coming a great apostasy, a rebellion, an opposition against Christ's own church. But again, the overarching message of 2 Thessalonians is this, settled in hope. We can be settled today, regardless of what's happening in the culture around us, regardless of what the House of Representatives passes and puts on the president's desk, regardless of what happens, we can be settled in hope. And here the, the issue is this coming Antichrist. Here the issue is this great apostasy and rebellion. And Paul is saying again, settle, settle. In spite of the coming adversity destined for believers, in spite of the escalation of evil in our world, the Christian is safe and secure. How do we know that? Well, let's look at our focal text this morning, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, but... We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. These verses here in chapter 2 have been described as a systematic theology in miniature. Why? Because here in this section, Paul is putting together this incredible Trinitarian view of our security and our salvation. He begins the section with the word, but, and that's connecting it to all that he previously talked about, what I just mentioned the coming of the Antichrist and the, the great apostasy, this alarming portrayal of the oppression that is coming upon Christ's people. God will, even through that, preserve and keep his own. In this section, again, we see that Paul's doctrine of salvation, his soteriology, it is thoroughly Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of them have a role in the Christian's salvation. And as he communicates this triune message uh, that in spite of threats, in spite of fears, in spite of the uh, unsure future, we are safe and secure. It's not about what happens on, on without. It has to do with what God has done within. Well, in keeping with this Trinitarian theme, I have three points to my message. And these three points really are metaphors. 
I want us to think about three aspects of God's triune work in our lives, and the metaphors I'm going to give you are sitting, walking, or stepping, and standing. Let's consider them together. The first one is this. I want us to be seated in the Father's choosing. Be seated in the Father's choosing. Rest, rest, Christian, in this reality. Again, verse 13 begins, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. I want you to circle those three words, God chose you, either on your outline or in your Bible. Paul is drawing our hearts and our minds to this fundamental reality of the gospel. The same words that Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. We can be safe and we can be secure in a world that is fraught with difficulty because God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Now this, what he's talking about here, is often described in theology as the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And while this can be a mysterious, yes, and even a confusing doctrine, even as perplexing as it is, it does not negate the fact that this doctrine is taught all through the Scripture and specifically in the New Testament with regard to believers in Christ. You know, often we can think that our salvation begins whenever we heard the gospel and we believed and we expressed faith. I can remember this event in my life all the way back 40 years ago sitting on the back row of First Baptist Church, Waimama, Florida. I heard the gospel, but it wasn't the first time I heard it. I'd heard it hundreds of times before through my Sunday school teachers, there in that church, through my parents at home, but something different happened on that day. On that day, my ears were awakened by the Spirit of God in a way they had not been awakened before. And I heard the gospel in a way and the gospel call in a way I had not heard it before. And I responded to that call of God and the truth of the gospel by repenting of my sins in brokenness, placing my faith in Jesus and surrendering to Christ as the Lord of my life. And while that conversion experience that I experienced, and if you're a Christian, you had a similar experience, we can look at least in this realm and think, yeah, that was the beginning of my salvation. In a very real sense, it was not the beginning of your salvation. You see, the beginning of your salvation, if you're saved today, goes all the way back into eternity past before anything was anything in the very heart and the mind of God. Again, this truth is communicated throughout the entire New Testament, but probably most familiarly in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. That is often called the golden chain of redemption because there Paul links together several profound words that show the immensity of our salvation from God's perspective. Notice Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The fact that God will one day complete this salvation by glorifying us, that truth is incredible. And the fact that he has justified us, declared us not guilty, acquitted of all of our sins, that truth is immense. And the reality that God calls us to himself, that is fantastic. But the fact that God has predestined us to salvation before the foundation of the world, it is nothing if it is not profound. And that's where this chain of salvation begins. With God predestining. Now, if you've been around church at all, 
you are surely aware that not all Christians accept this doctrine of election. And there's usually two ways that it is explained away. First of all, it says that what God has predestined is either the means of salvation or the principle of salvation, some would say. Or the other way it's explained is by saying, no, what happens is that God in his omniscience saw way back then the choice you would make today, and so he chose you because he already knew you were going to choose him. Now, there's, these are really good observations if it wasn't for one thing. That's not what the Bible teaches. These would be valid except of what Scripture actually says. Now, again, our focal text for this morning, notice again what it says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. God did not choose a plan or a principle or a means. God chose people. He's writing to the people of the church in Thessalonica, and he says, God chose you, people. This is fantastic. Further, it's not that God saw their choice ahead of time and back in eternity and decided to choose them because they chose him first. First of all, that doesn't make logical sense. But secondly, that explanation is thoroughly humanistic. It's man-centered. It says that my will trumps God's will. No. The text doesn't say a principle, but a people. But what was the motivating factor for God's choosing? Don't miss this line. It's not a throwaway line. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Friends, God's choosing is rooted in his unconditional love. Paul communed this same truth in Ephesians 1. I didn't realize Tracy was going to use that as our call to worship this morning. Notice again what the text says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. He, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. While Amy and I were still dating before we were even engaged to be married, we talked about the fact that each of us individually believed we had been called to adoption that we would adopt a child one day. But it wasn't until 16 years ago that he confirmed in our own hearts, now is the time. It just so happens that that time, we were in the middle of designing a custom home. We were literally drawing out every square foot on graph paper how this home was going to be constructed. And as God was confirming in our hearts, now is the time you will adopt, we adjusted those plans to make room for the sun we had not yet had. Was we compl- before we were even done with the construction, we got contacted by the adoption agency that we had been matched with a newborn baby boy. And the adoption agency gave us this photograph at two months old. Before we ever met him, before we ever held him, I put this in a frame, and this picture has been seated on my bedside table for 16 years. Before he was in my arms, my affection was towards this child. I built a home for him. I had already named him. I had already declared he would be my son. 
long before it took place. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. The electing love of God is the believer's foundation for safety and security. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah spoke the word of God in these ways in chapter 31. God speaking says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And John reiterated this foundational truth in his first epistle. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, our safety and our security in the face of all threats of danger, persecution, tribulation, hardship, escalating evil in society. Our foundation for safety and security is that we can take a seat. We can rest in the choosing of the Father. And that leads to the second metaphor of how we live in the truth of light of coming conflict. Secondly, we walk in step with the Spirit's consecration. Our salvation is rooted in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, but we know it must be lived out in the present. He describes this lived out reality in the last phrase of verse 13. He says this, through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. If you've been around here any length of time, you no doubt know this idea of sanctification. And sanctification, as it's described in the Bible, really has two aspects to it. There's a subjective aspect and an objective aspect. The subjective aspect of sanctification is this idea of the believers gradual conforming to the image of Christ, that we're growing up, that we're transitioning from sin into more and more holiness. But this concept of sanctification also has an objective meaning that is really broader in scope, and it's the way that Paul's using it here. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be set aside, to be consecrated, which is why I use the word consecration. That's the way Paul uses it here. The Holy Spirit has consecrated us to salvation. Now, Paul continues this, again, this Trinitarian theme with regard to our salvation, what God the Father has chosen in the past, God the Spirit has consecrated, has sanctified in the present. Listen, the members of the Trinity always work in concert together. And this is the second reason why we, the elect, are given uh, confidence of our safety and security, that we will not fall prey to the evil one's schemes. We will not fall prey to the lies of a coming Antichrist. Why? Because we who are in Christ, we have been sanctified. We've been set apart. We've been marked. We've been consecrated as his. You see, it is by the blowing wind of the Holy Spirit that we were actually sanctified. It is through the blowing wind of the Spirit that we've been consecrated as his own. This is exactly how Jesus put it as he was talking to Nicodemus that night, Nick at night, in John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nick, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Paul's point here is this very same view of the Spirit that he has blown into your life. He has sanctified you. He has consecrated you. He has set you apart unto himself. And because he has done that, friend, he will protect you. He will keep you safe and secure. John echoed this promise in his first epistle in chapter 4. He said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And how is this consecration by the Spirit confirmed in our lives? How do we have affirmation that, in fact, the Spirit has blown into our lives and we have been set apart by Him? Well, notice what Paul says in our focal text, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you believe the truth? Do you believe the truth of who Jesus is? This is the confirmation that we have the Spirit's working in our lives, that we believe the truth. In fact, consider the contrast of how Paul described the working of the evil one in the last days. We studied this last week, verses 9 and 10. Look at it again. I would draw your attention there. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Those who are perishing are those who believe the lies. Those who are perishing are those who have been deceived by the evil one, who do not love the truth. Contrast that with those who are safe and secure are those who have been sanctified by the Spirit and belief in the truth. These work together, the consecrating work of the Spirit in our lives. What is the truth we believe? The truth of who Jesus is, that he is the truth, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. In fact, Jesus went on to say in John 16 that the work of the Spirit was, in fact, to bear testimony about himself, about who he was and what he has done. He says in John 16, 14, that the Spirit of truth will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, there's a connection between the Spirit and His work of sanctification and our belief and love of the truth. There's a connection between the Spirit's work and our belief in the truth. So here's the thing. Here's a question, class. How do you become more spiritual? How do you grow spiritually? How are you empowered by the Spirit? How do you bear the fruit of the Spirit? How do you Walk in the Spirit. The work of the Spirit and the truth of who Jesus is, they are inextricably linked. If you want to grow in the Spirit, what's your engagement with God's Word look like? So how are we safe and secure in these last days? Our grounding is that we are seated in the Father's choosing. Here's the gift. We walk in step with the Spirit's consecration. Number three, we take a stand in the Son's conquest. Paul concludes the promise of our safety and our security as believers by drawing our attention to the future 
glorification of the Son, which we who are in Christ will share in that glory. Now, those are just words that really kind of wash over our mind because we can't possibly conceive of what it means that we mere mortals will share in the glory of the resurrected and exalted Son. But that's exactly what Paul promises here in verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We take our stand. We take our stand in this fact. The resurrected, ascended, and exalted Son of God will conquer all of his foes. He will enter eternal glory forever and always. Now, how do we enter into that glory? How, to, how do we obtain that glory? Well, Paul says there, to this he called you through our gospel. Paul personalizes the gospel, not the gospel, but through our gospel. What's he referencing here? He's referencing what's described for us in summary in Acts chapter 17 at the beginning of that chapter. It describes in Paul's second missionary journey when he journeyed through the city of Thessalonica with Paul and Silas. And there for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them, and there for three Sabbaths he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and something happened. God called some people to salvation. This message of who Jesus is and what he had done was miraculous in nature in that some of them believed. Others did not. Like not only did they not believe, but they hated Paul's message, and they wanted to kill him, and they drove him out on a rail. Then he goes to Berea, and they follow him there to kill him there. They hated the message of the gospel of Jesus. But he says, to this he called you. <laughs> through our gospel message. They were called, and here's the theological term, effectually. The effectual call of God. There's a difference we see in Scripture between the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. Everyone in Thessalonica received the general call, but only a few received the effectual call. What's he referring to here? He called you. He's referring to that supernatural event that takes place when a thoroughly insufficient and completely inadequate human like me says, thus says the Lord. And through the preaching of the gospel, he does a miracle in the heart of a sinner, transferring him from death to life. Now, Again, this effectual call is different than the general call because the effectual call is that supernatural work of the new birth. That effectual call is regeneration. We are granted the gift of faith according to Ephesians 2.8. I think one of the greatest examples of the difference between the general call and the effectual call is actually the disciple Matthew. Matthew, as you know, was a tax collector. His base of operations was Capernaum. And there he was sitting in his tax booth. It just so happened that somebody else had a base of operations in Capernaum. His name was Jesus. And there's no doubt in my mind that Matthew, the tax collector, had seen Jesus perhaps many times. He'd heard his message of the kingdom of God. He had no doubt heard firsthand reports of healings and miracles that Jesus had accomplished, but none of that moved him to faith until he got the effectual call. 
And Matthew records that effectual call in his own gospel, bearing his name in chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Friends, this is the effectual call of the Lord. It moved him to follow. What is it that moved Matthew from his seat of selfishness, his seat of betraying his own countrymen, his seat of only living for money? The call of Jesus. Notice again verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, often we think of our salvation as being saved from all these things in the past. We're saved from our past sin. We're saved from our past mistakes. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. We're saved from the power of Satan in our lives. We're saved from condemnation and guilt. And all that is true, but friends, think about what you're saved to. We're saved to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the conquest of Jesus that Paul's talking about. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, regardless of what government does, regardless of what different denominations and churches do, regardless of the evil that is escalating in our world, Jesus wins. Christ wins. And to this he called you to obtain the glory of our God. There are dark days coming. Evil stalks the land. Perversion is rampant. And there are professing Christians who are being deceived by doctrines of demons. But we who are in Christ, who have by faith trusted in him, Paul tells us to raise our gaze above all that's happening and be settled in this hope. There is a glory in Christ to be obtained. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in one sentence, Paul sweeps from our salvation rooted in eternity past to be realized in eternity future. And what a great salvation it is. And Paul is moved here to thanksgiving. We ought always to be thanks, thankful now, when considering the safety and the security we find in God, that which is pronounced in eternity past and preserved for eternity future, there's a tendency for some to think wrongly, well, then there's nothing for me to do. God's done it all. There's nothing for me to do, and that couldn't be further from the truth. See, the question is, how do we stand? How do we stand in the face of the coming storm? How do we stand? the same way you would stand if you were on a sailboat in the midst of a raging storm and sea. You would cling to the mast. You would hold on for dear life to that mast of security. What is our mast of security in the days to come, Christian? Well, Paul tells us in verse 15. Look again at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to, cling to, rely on, the traditions that you were taught by us, us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I want you to circle that word traditions on your outline or in your Bible. The word traditions, normally we don't use it in a very positive way. But we talk about, oh, that church is stuck in the man-made traditions, right? 
Now, even Jesus railed against the traditions of the Pharisees. In fact, this same word is used of Jesus talking bad about the traditions of the Pharisees that they had put on top of the truth. So what is he talking about here when he says traditions? Well, he defines it in the text. What are the traditions? Those things that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. These traditions refer to the apostolic teaching. This is the authoritative word for the church in the first century and in the 21st century. What is meant here is a system or a body of doctrine, of theology, of truth. Now, you've probably heard people, I know I have, I'm not really into theology, just give me Jesus. And that sounds okay on the surface, but which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Muslim Jesus, who is just a human being and not the Son of God? Do you want the Mormon Jesus, who was a spiritual brother of Lucifer? Do you want the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, who is not the God, but is simply a God? Do you want the Unitarian Jesus, who is a good moral teacher, but in no way is he God? Those are all Jesuses. Which Jesus do you want? The true Jesus. And by the way, there's only one. It's the Jesus that is delivered to us through the traditions, the system of theology and doctrine taught to us by the apostles. He's talking about here a codified body of doctrinal truth. And we cling to this truth. We cling to this theology. And it enables us to stand firm. Paul put it like this in Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Friends, the only way to resist false teaching is to cling to the mast of truth. Now, let me close this message today with a question. Is holding fast to biblical truth really so decisive in our lives? Or another way, can believing what the apostles wrote 2,000 years ago really impact my life today? Well, this week of Veterans Day, let me draw your attention to another veteran's story. This is an American military veteran named Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete who com competed in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. After the Olympics and after World War II started, he joined the United States Air Force and was actually a bombardier on a B-24 bomber in the Pacific Theater of the war. On May 27, 1943, his bomber experienced mechanical failures and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Eight of the 11 crew members died in that crash. Three of them floated at sea for 47 days, existing on rainwater and raw fish that they were able to catch and also beating off the occasional shark with an oar. Finally, they reached the Marshall Islands, where they were immediately taken prisoner by the Japanese and were held as prisoners of war for over two more years, where they were severely beaten and thoroughly abused until the end of the war in August 1945. When Zamp Zamperini discovered that he was free because of the Allied victory, when he got back to the States, he realized he wasn't actually free. He was in bondage 
to hatred, anger, resentment, and evil in his heart, which had turned so much that he gave himself to the bottle. He was now enslaved to alcohol more than he was ever enslaved to the Japanese. In 1949, a neighbor invited Lewis and his wife to the Billy Graham crusade that was going to be held in Los Angeles. Lewis said, thanks, but no thanks. But his wife went. And after a series of meetings, she was called effectually and gave her life to Jesus Christ. And she came home and asked Lewis to go with her. He relented. And after a couple of more meetings, God set him free for real. In fact, later he described it like this, quote, there was an enveloping calm that let me know that I had come to Christ and Christ had come to me. And if the story ended there, it would be encouraging, of course, but it doesn't. You see, for Zamparini to stand firm in the truth of what this radical transformation of Christ in his life looked like, it meant he would be thoroughly free. First, he was set free and delivered from the penalty of his own sin, but then he was delivered from his hatred of the Japanese and his addiction to the bottle. His violent anger was now tamed, and he was able to trust in Jesus in life. His anger against the Japanese actually turned into a deep heart of love for them. So much so that one year later in 1950, at his own expense, he traveled back to Japan. And he went to the very uh, prison camps that held war criminals. And he visited some of the very guards who had tortured him. And he told them, I forgive you. And he shared his gospel with them, and several gave their lives to Jesus. Zamparini would go on to give his life in Christian service and ministry. There's actually a movie and a book named Unbroken that chronicles his life, but it all gives strong evidence to the powerful, transforming work of the traditions of the apostles that has been handed down to us. And if you don't believe Louis Zamperini, perhaps you'll believe the Lord Jesus. Notice how he put it in John chapter 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will be free from the evil powers seeking to destroy your soul, free from the guilt and condemnation of your own sin, freed from following the futile paths that this world throws at you, that this is what meaning is, this is what success looks like. You'll be freed from those and live in a real way for the glory of God alone. If we are seated in God's sovereign grace, if we are in step with the power of the Spirit's sanctification, and if we are standing firm in the glory of our victor, Jesus Christ, we can know that we know that we know we are safe at harbor, safe and secure. And that leads to my last thought. Our confidence for the future is founded upon the saving work of our triune God. 